Good morning, everybody. I'm Daru, for, who, for those who don't know who I am. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalms 95 in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The theme of today's service is rejoice in the king and obey his voice. So please listen for how that theme is reflected in our scripture readings. Psalms 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out loud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and in the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in his worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Ma the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is, she, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Je when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. As we light the first candle of Advent, we look back um, on the coming of Jesus the King, and we rejoice. He is the Lord, he is our maker, uh, who humbled himself and became human to make his first father known and to redeem us from our sins. We also look forward to when he comes again. In anticipation of that day, we seek to listen to and obey his voice. Well, this is it. The Christmas season is officially here. And when I say that, you know, the Christmas season, I it's interesting how we all know what that means. We have our traditions for celebrating Christmas that are so ingrained into us, right? My, my sister Beth puts together a, a schedule every year of all the movies she has to watch before Christmas. Uh, there's, there's things that you have to watch. You have to watch The Grinch. You have to watch Charlie Brown and Home Alone and all those other ones too. And those traditions, right, they're going to change from person to person, and especially because we have a diverse church of people from different generations and even different nations who celebrate Christmas differently and are used to different things. 
But we all have Christmas traditions that are just like a part of our soul, right? And I wonder how often, though, we've thought about the fact that almost none of them have anything to do with Jesus. Even the things that we do at church, right, like the traditions that have been built up around Christmas, don't come from the Bible. They don't really have anything to do with Jesus. Did you know that? Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, long before Jesus was born, pagans who worshipped false gods would have hearty winter celebrations that happened around the winter solstice at the end of December. It was the shortest day of the year, and they would get together, and they'd worship, they'd worship their gods, and they'd celebrate together. One of the ones that's sort of most significant for how we celebrate Christmas today is called Yule. You've often maybe heard that term in relation to Christmas even. Yule was a celebration of the wild hunt when the king of the gods, known as Woden, who was an old man with a long white beard, would ride across the sky on an eight-legged horse. You know, worshippers of Woden would celebrate Yule by getting together with family and friends and feast and sing and give gifts to one another. And they'd decorate fir trees and fir branches, and a lot of that already sounds super familiar, right? And then sometime after Jesus' life and death, Christians started celebrating Christmas on December 25th. We don't really know why. We don't have anywhere in history where it says, this is why we've done it. Jesus was born this day. That's a possibility, Likely, it's because they were just taking the pagan celebrations that were around them and saying, well, let's celebrate Jesus this day instead. Fast forward about 300 years after Christ, there was a Christian Turkish bishop named Nicholas who was known for his generosity and his acts of giving to the poor. And after his death, the Roman Catholic Church declared him a saint and gave him a holiday called St. Nicholas Day on December 6th completely unrelated to Jesus, except that he loved Jesus himself. And it, on that day, they would celebrate this saint. They'd honor this saint by giving children gifts. They'd put them in their shoes. Let's see where that comes from, what we do today. And throughout the Middle Ages, a, a, a legend arose that St. Nicholas himself would come and give those gifts to the children. Fast forward again, now we're in 1517. A German monk named Martin Luther starts realizing that the Roman Catholic Church has lost the gospel and wants to get back to what the Bible actually says. He starts something that becomes known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, one of the things that Martin Luther didn't want people doing is following all the Roman Catholic traditions of honoring the saints and praying to the saints. So they wanted to get rid of St. Nicholas Day, but they liked the idea of giving gifts, right? So just like before with the pagan thing, they co-opted that and said, let's do it on December 25th as well. And Martin Luther said, well, what if we even get rid of the whole idea that St. Nicholas brings them and we'll say that baby Jesus brings the gifts, which not to be culturally insensitive to any German people who may have grown up with the, the Christkind, I think that's uh, maybe a step in the wrong direction trying to honor Jesus, but he didn't ask me. And you know, around the same time in England... They were going through the same kind of thing. We want to celebrate Jesus and have Christmas, but we like these old traditions. And so in, in England, you know, there's some people, the Puritans wanted to have nothing to do with even celebrating Christmas, but they, others said, well, we like the old traditions. And so they started to think about this character named Father Christmas. Now, today we think of Father Christmas, if you've heard of him, as just the British version of Santa Claus. He wasn't anything to do with Santa Claus. He was this embodiment of, they called him, the Christmas spirit. He was a wild old man with a long beard who went around spreading cheer. In other words, he was Woden, 
right? If you've ever read uh, The Christmas Carol, uh, 200 years later, Charles Dickens included him in this story as the ghost of Christmas present, the big wild man uh, who, that visited uh, Scrooge. And we talk about the Christmas spirit, getting in the Christmas spirit, we literally are talking about a pagan god. Then, in 1823, it all came to a head when a man named Clement Mark Moore wrote a children's poem, drawing on all these millennium of traditions. This poem was called A Visit from St. Nicholas. You know it. It starts, "'Twas the night before Christmas, went all through the house." And that poem invented Santa Claus. That nailed it in, and everyone started believing in Santa Claus, basically based on that poem, except there's one extra step that happened. And this is the, this is the really important one that really made that Santa Claus spread all over the world. Department stores started putting Santa Clauses in them so that their kids would want presents and the parents would have to buy them. So Macy's in New York was one of the major ones to do that. But then it spread like wildfire because it's a great idea to make money. And all the shops in England started doing it. And they were like, well, we have Father Christmas. Let's just put the two ideas together. And now Santa Claus has been the way that, you know, stores have sent, sold presents and Coke has sent, sold their soft drinks and, and all those things. Did you know, not, not just... Santa Claus and ho-ho-ho and mistletoe and presents. But everything when we talk about Christmas, Christmas trees, getting into the Christmas spirit, having feasts together with family, giving presents, it either comes from pagan holidays, Roman Catholic tradition, or commercial greed. Like everything. And, and, And I'm not here suggesting that we get rid of all of the things that I love about Christmas, right? Like, they're, they're fun things to do. And, and getting together with family and friends and having a meal and giving gifts and singing silly songs and watching the Grinch and all that stuff, that's harmless, although it can be done in a really thoughtless way that distracts from Jesus, right? Or you can have your Christmas celebrations in a thoughtful way, in a purposeful way that do celebrate Jesus. And all I wanted to do by going through that history was to draw your attention to the fact that just because we do it at Christmas time doesn't mean that we're doing it in a way that celebrates Jesus. So what does it look like for us to celebrate Jesus, purposely honor him in our Christmas celebrations? That, that's the question that we're looking at today. And this year in Advent, as Aaron mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at Psalms 95 to 100. These Psalms, as you read through them, may not immediately seem like Christmas passages in the Bible, but they are. In fact, Psalm 98 is the basis of the song Joy to the World, which we sang earlier. These psalms have a theme that's woven throughout them, which is this, rejoice in the king. Each psalm either speaks of God as the king or sitting on a throne or reigning. Those, those ideas come up. And he calls God's people to celebrate God our king. And so we think about Christmas we celebrate, what we really need to be celebrating is God our King who became a human, born in a stable in Bethlehem. That he became one of us so that he could save us. That's what Christmas is about, as you know. How do we celebrate that well? So each week as we go through Advent this year, we're going to consider one aspect of who Jesus is as our King. How we should rejoice and celebrate him in response. So today we're going to kick off this series looking at Psalm 95, which Daru read for us before. We're going to see what celebrating Jesus means. So first, as we look in this passage, we're going to see our major theme for the whole week, or the whole month, which is we need to rejoice in the King. 
So look at Psalm 95. Starting at verse 1, it says this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So we need to remember when we read the Psalms, this isn't just a poem in a book that's ancient. This is a song that was written for a congregation to sing together. We don't know the tune of it, but we know that it's designed for worship together with other people. Singing it out loud. And it, it starts with a call to worship to the people, right? We sang just, just a minute ago, O come, all ye faithful. And that's how the song starts too. O come, you people of God. Let's sing this together. Come on, everyone. What are we doing? Well, it says we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're rejoicing in Yahweh. Verse 1 says to sing for joy to Him. To shout aloud to Him. Verse 2 says, come before him with thanksgiving. That, that doesn't mean just, you know, thankfulness in your hearts. The word literally means an out loud confession of thanksgiving. It tells us to extol him, which means to shout in triumph and an applause, to praise with exuberance. We're extolling him with music and song. Do you get the idea that this is not a somber occasion? It's festive and loud and joyful. And Mary, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la, right? This psalm is calling us to have fun and to be happy and to be glad in our hearts and to actually celebrate God. Why? Why does it want us to do that? Look at verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Well, there it is, right? We rejoice in God because He is the King. Because all other deities worshipped by anyone around the world are false gods. They are not gods. Only Yahweh is the great God and King, the one true God. All the other so-called gods around the world, if the world continues, will fade and be forgotten. They'll become legends. And they'll end up in a Marvel movie like Woden, also known as Odin. All the other important men and women that are, that are honored, even the ones that deserve to be honored, like Nicholas, they'll be turned into a cartoon character. Right? I'm sure Nicholas would be horrified about what's happened to his memory as a man who loved Jesus. Our God is greater than them. Why is he so great? Look at verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and, in, and his hand formed the dry land. These, these verses have a poetic device in them where you take two opposite things and put them side by side as a poetic way of saying everything in between them too. It happens twice in, in these verses. Verse 4, it says, The depths of the earth are in his hands, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The deepest depths and the highest heights belong to our God. He made them. He's in control of them. And then verse 5, he says, he made the sea and he formed the dry land. He made the whole world. Everything is his. From the top of Mount Everest to the very deepest depths of the Marianas Trench in the ocean. The highest and the lowest, the dry and the ocean. It was all made by God and it is his hand that maintains it. All right, we could take it further and say all the stars and the galaxies in the universe and all the microbes on the earth. He made them. He knows them. He sustains them. All the plants and the animals and the protists and the monera. Remember your biology classes in high school. All the angels and the demons. 
are under his power. That's who our God is. And the Christmas story is a story of this great God, the king over all, the creator of everything that we can see and everything that we can't see, joining his creation, becoming one of us, humbling himself, and taking on humanity. That's a mind-boggling truth. You know, sometimes people get hung up on the virgin birth. Virgins can't have babies. Did you understand that God became a human in this story? The creator of all things has become part of the creation. The hands that formed the mountains were tiny and helpless. If that could, if that could possibly be true, then the virgin birth isn't that hard to believe. Have you ever seen a baby flail their arms around because they have no control and then hit themselves in the face and not know what happened to them, right? That happened to God. That, like, just take a second to think about that. Our king made himself lowly for us. That's worth, worth celebrating loudly. So enjoy Christmas with that in mind. Talk about Jesus in these ways and celebrate him with us and with your family and your friends. Eat, sing, and be merry because of the Lord who is our king. But, you know, the wonder of such an amazing truth is only just the beginning of why we celebrate Christmas. The true heart of Christmas is why God became a human and was born in Bethlehem. Why did he do that? Well, look at verse 6. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So let's pause there for a second before we get to the why. And notice that verse 6 begins with another call. Another call to action. Come on, let's do this together. Except now what we're being called to is slightly different. It's still worship. Except now instead of being loud and, instead of being loud and boisterous, it's a quieter and more lowly kind of praise. We're not being called to sing or to shout, but to kneel before our maker. That's our second point in here that we see today. The second way that we celebrate Jesus, to kneel before our maker. If you have kids in kid zone, like your children, uh, you might recognize this verse because it was a memory verse a few, uh, a few months ago, right? Psalm 95, 6, MJ was singing that all the time at our house. But at the beginning of the song, we loudly rejoice and sing and shout. But now the singing and shouting turns into quiet reverence and honor. Why, why does it do that? Look at verse 7. For, that means this is the answer. For he is our God and we are, his pe- we are the people of his pasture. The flock under his care. Here's what this is saying. God isn't just the God. He's our God. And we are his people. He's mighty and he's so far above and beyond us. He's unknowable and unfathomable. How how can we know the God who holds the world in his hands? It's because he's made himself known to us. He cares for us like a shepherd cares for his sheep. You all know the, the story of what Jesus says that a sheep won't come to a stranger. They only know their shepherd's voice and follow him. We're the people that 
God leads to pasture. We're the sheep that he carries in his hands. He provides for us. Right? The literal language here, it says in our NIV that he's, we're under his care, but the literal language is that we're in his hands. It's not just the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks that are in the hand of God, but we're there too. He cares for us. Think just a minute about all that that means that God cares for us and has called us as his people. Just the, just the fact that he's so far beyond us and so much more great than us and more powerful than us makes it just so incredible that he would care for us at all, right? If you ever read Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4 say that, when I consider your heavens, Lord, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, of them? Or human beings that you care for them? It doesn't, it doesn't really compute, does it? The God who is so far above us, so much further above us than we are above bacteria. He loves us. Not just an general interest in our well-being, but as individuals. He loves us and he cares about us. But then we have to go a step further than just the, the greatness difference. But remember that not only did God make us and not only is he our king, but we're rebels against our creator and our king. Each of us chooses every day to spit in his face and slap away his hand and scream in our teeny tiny little voices, no, I'm the king. That's true whether we fully rejected God or we believe in him just enough for our own convenience or we work really hard to follow all of his rules because we want to be good enough on our own. We are rebels against God. We're sinners who have turned away from the loving care of our Lord and Maker. We commit acts of cosmic treason every day, and as a result, we deserve cosmic punishment. How how could God love a people like that? But the overwhelming message of the entire Bible is that He does love us, that He desires to forgive our sins and to change us so that we can see the good ways of God and follow them instead of the ways of our heart. So he made a plan, even before he created the world. He made a plan to rescue us from our sin and rebellion. And one of the early stages of this plan was to reveal himself to the Jewish people and be their God, make a sacred promise with them, a covenant to be their God and and to, to make them his special people. He revealed himself to them. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle and the temple. He helped them to understand their sin and gave them a symbolic sacrifice, sacrificial system in a way of recognizing those sins and saying these are a problem we need them dealt with. The original Jewish singers and writers of this psalm, that was their relationship to God as a step along the, plan, the path to God's ultimate salvation. God had revealed himself to them and had provided a way for them to know him in spite of their sin. But that wasn't the end of the plan because The blood of animals couldn't pay for the sins, right? You can't send a goat to prison for you in Canada and say that'll take care of it. How much more can we not have a goat die for us and take the cosmic punishment that we deserve for rebelling against God? And that's where Christmas comes in, right? That God himself came as a baby so that he could live among us as a human being and do so without sin, that he was was perfect, right? He never sinned. 
He lived a life that we could never live, and then he offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. Now, now you may say, well, wait a minute. Just like I can't send a goat to prison for me, I can't send someone else to prison for me as long as the justice system is working. So how does that work? Well, no, but if you think about it a little bit differently, if you lend your new smartphone to me and I drop it in Lake Ontario and it gets fried, you have two options. You can make me pay for it, or you can forgive me and pay for it yourself. And that's what God is doing in, in Jesus. That Jesus becoming a human, he, he's saying, every single sin that was committed is against me. And so I will forgive you by absorbing the penalty for that myself, the payment for it. And so Jesus became one of us. He stands in our place and he takes the cosmic punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He went through hell on the cross for us. And then he rose again in victory so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be made new. And that truth is one that we talk about all the time and it can become old news to us, but it's one that deserves solemn, humble reflection and praise and worship. We need to kneel before the Lord, our maker, who showed us deep love by taking our place and dying for our sins, making us his. How do we do that? Well, this Sunday and Christmas morning Sunday both happen to be communion Sundays. Taking communion is one of the ways that God has has given us to take the time to reflect on what he's done for us, how he has made us his, right? We talked about the covenant that God made with the people of Israel. When Jesus had the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is, this is how you show that you're my people. By doing this together after you've believed in me. So make it a plan to be here on Christmas morning and to, as we take communion later, to remember these things and reflect on these things. I know some of you are traveling or whatever, but churches are open all over the world on Christmas morning this year. And take time also over the next month to reflect on this truth, Right? Don't just get so caught up in the busyness of these things, but take time to read the Christmas story again with those eyes and thinking about what we're talking about today. Pray on your own and with your family and with other believers. Don't just get caught up in the merriment that you miss the solemnity of this. So celebrating Jesus means rejoicing in our King. It means kneeling before our Maker. And then the psalm also gives us one last way to celebrate Jesus. I want you to notice that at the end of verse 6 going into verse 7, or sorry, end of verse 7 going into verse 8, the tone changes. So far, there have been these encouragements. Come, let's do this together. But now it changes into a, a warning. It's no longer us, but now it's you need to do this. Look at the end of verse 7. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did in the day of Massa in the wilderness. There's some details in there we need to kind of flesh out what they mean, but here's the third, the third way we celebrate Jesus. We obey his voice. And we don't harden our hearts against him. We obey his voice. <clears throat> so this psalm is making a reference here to God's people after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Right? You know the story of Moses and crossing the Red Sea? They escaped, and immediately after that they became began grumbling against God. 
right? If you read Exodus 17 around that, that part of the Bible, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they're in the wilderness. And now what they could have done and what they should have done is say, God literally just had us walk across dry land in the middle of the Red Sea. He literally just sent ten plagues on the mightiest nation in the world so that we could be freed from slavery. I think God is going to take care of us. And they could have gone to him and said, Lord, we're hungry, we're thirsty, would you please help us with this? We're allowed to do that. But what they did instead was they went to Moses and said, we should have just stayed in Egypt, at least we had food there. Do you hate us? Does God hate us? Are we going to starve and die of thirst in the wilderness because you don't love us? And they rebelled and they grumbled and they hardened their hearts and they refused to trust God. And so God, in his goodness, he miraculously sent manna, right? That heavenly wafer of bread that appeared in the morning. And he had Moses go and take his staff and strike a rock and water gushed out of it. He provided for them. But then Moses called that rock Massa and Meribah, right? Massa means quarreling. Sorry, Meribah means quarreling and Massa means testing. People quarreled with God. They put him to the test. They didn't trust him, which is what verse 8 is saying. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. The sad part of the story, we all have bad days, right? But the sad part of the story about these Israelites in the wilderness is that they didn't learn from this experience. That kind of grumbling was true of their entire experience after they escaped from Egypt. They continued to test God and to quarrel with him, And it was so bad that God decided, you know what, you're not going into the promised land. This generation is going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until you all die off and then I'll take your children in instead. Because you just won't trust me. You rebel against me at every turn. And that's what he says in verse 10 of this, this psalm. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So, so here's the challenge for us in this psalm. Where are the areas in your life where you have a hard time trusting and obeying God? Where do you hear his voice and harden your heart and say, I'm not going to do that? Where are you prone to grumble against your situation, against his commands? I think Christmas is a really important time to ask this question. Because though we can love it, we can also hate it sometimes. Right? Like, just life gets busy and you got to juggle your crazy family's expectations and, you know, who wants to get gifts for who this... Like, it's all of it. It's just kind of a headache sometimes. Right? And it can be really easy to grumble. Some of my crazy family's here, so I, I don't mean you guys. The other ones, of course. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and if you're listening, not you either, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about, right? We can, we can find an excuse to grumble over it. And alternatively, for some of us, Christmas isn't busy at all. It's just so very lonely. And both of those situations can be an excuse to grumble, to stop thinking about how God is trying to speak to you and just to simply ignore it and disobey him. So so here's the question. 
what has God been saying to you that you need to not harden your heart against, that you need to hear? You know, we just came off our missions conference as a church. Did God prick your heart to care more about missions, to, to, to pray harder for missions, to give money to missionaries? Or possibly even to explore what it would look like for you to uproot your whole life and go somewhere else to share the gospel and strengthen churches in a part of the world that desperately needs it. If God is pricking your heart for that, and I have been praying that he will, for myself and for all of us, don't harden your heart and test God. Or maybe, as another example this Christmas, you know, as I reminded you that for some people Christmas is really lonely, you felt God nudging you to think about somebody from our church or somebody in your neighborhood who you know will be alone this Christmas and to invite them over on Christmas Day for dinner and uh, give them a gift and spend some time with them. For some of us, that feels so overwhelming to think of a stranger coming in to invade on in our family time at Christmas. But who said that Christmas had to be a family time? Right? I mean, even the Woden worshipers did better than that. That's not what the Bible talks about at all. If, if, if Christmas is about Jesus, then giving and sharing and being for one another, that's what it should be all about, right? Whatever it is that God's saying to your heart today or in the past weeks or, or in the, the weeks to come, don't let Christmas be an excuse for you to disobey God's voice. In fact, let it be the motivation to obey and listen and, and move. You follow the example of Joseph who trusted God and married Mary though he felt betrayed and though all the cultural pressure pushed him against it. Joseph trusted God because he loved God. And he knew that this psalm tells us that God is the king above all gods. That we are his, that we are in his hands, and that God will take care of us. But here's what Joseph didn't know. Joseph didn't know what we know about the child that Mary was carrying. Right? He got a little, little bit of information that we heard about as Daru read it for us. But he didn't know that it was God himself who would become a human to live among us, a perfect life, and then die in our place on the cross and rise again so that we could be rescued from our sins. And the plan that God had created before the creation of the world to save us was coming to a head in this child that he would be an adoptive father to. This psalm tells us that we should trust God because, well, they knew that God had rescued them from Egypt and slavery. But how much more should we trust God because he's rescued us from our sins? The psalm tells us that the rebellious generation of Israel lost out on entering God's rest, which means they weren't allowed to enter the promised land. But ultimately, and the book of Hebrews uh, does this for us, it takes the psalm and, and gives us a little bit more things to think about. Ultimately, God's plan is so much more than giving his people a rocky plot of land in, on the eastern Mediterranean. And God's plan is eternal life with him for us. That's what he wants for us. That's what he sacrificed for for us. That's why he took our punishment, because he loves us. And though life is hard and we face hardships, I mean, if you are in the wilderness with potentially millions of people and have no water and food, that's a real big problem, right? They weren't like out of the realm of reasonableness to be upset in the wilderness there. 
Now, life is hard, but what we know is that none of that hardship means that God has abandoned us or that he's not taking care of us anymore. None of it means that God doesn't care about us or that he isn't powerful. You know, we're not always going to understand everything, everything that happens in our lives. But we do know that at the end of it all, we will be with him and everything will be okay. So this Christmas, in the midst of all the, midst of all the festivities and the traditions and the annoying music at the mall and all the things that we deal with, let's be sure to rejoice in our King who became one of us. Let's kneel before our Maker who went to great lengths to care for us and make us His. And because of all these things, let us obey his voice. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we enter this Christmas season and we start our Christmas shopping and think of all the things that are going to be happening around us and maybe some of us are too busy and some of us are just too lonely. As we have other things in life, as kids are sick and people have the flu and We're dealing with all just the realities of life. Help us to take the time that we need to sing loudly and rejoice in our King. Stop and take some time to quietly, humbly kneel before you for all that you've done for us. And then just to go and obey what what you want us to do. Help us to honor Christ in what we do this Christmas and not just go on autopilot like we, we so easily could do because of all the traditions that we've learned over the years. Help us to celebrate you truly this year. As we we sing one more song and prepare for communion, we ask that you be working in our hearts so that as we go today, we can do these things. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.